Salam and hello. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakella Piper, and I'm so glad that you tuned in today. I'm sure that many of you who are listening have either given money or clothing or time to children's homes or orphanages. And I'm sure that many of you, just like me, have done so because you're troubled by the idea that children are growing up without parents or without care. And just like me, you've likely even visited an orphanage or a children's home. But what would you think or do differently if you knew that 80 to 90% of the children in those institutions are not orphans at all, but have a living parent? Not an auntie or a grandmother, but that 80 to 90% of them have a living parent. Well, on today's show, we'll be discussing this issue and discussing how we can do better than just visiting institutions that house children, but actually work towards ending orphanage tourism. In Kenya, orphanages and institutions are called charitable children's institution. That's the official name. But what we know to be true is that many of these organizations have become profit-driven. Voluntourism is the practice of domestic and international volunteers visiting these institutions, and that includes anyone, a missionary, a school group, families, charities, clubs, who visit these organizations in the intention of doing good, and yet contribute to a problem that has long-term and irreparable harm to children. On today's show, Stephen Usembe, the founder of the Kenyan Society of Care Leavers and the Regional Advocacy Manager for Hope and Homes for Children, and Ruth Washuka, a global advocate for children's rights, are here. And they're going to talk to us about what we can do to help care for children better and differently. Stephen and Ruth, welcome to Uproot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Before we get into the technical details about this issue, the statistics and the numbers that are so important and we will share, can I ask you both to take a moment to tell us a bit about your personal stories and how you got involved with advocating for children? Stephen, let's start with you. Thank you, Lily. Again, my name is Stephen, and um, I'm really glad to be part of this podcast. Um, So when I was five years old, um, I was able to I was taken to an institution that was after my mother died. Um, I was there with my two other siblings, my sister and one of my older brothers. Um, From that time, I remember very well, you know, being taken by a Land Rover uh, from a hospital where we were first kept. uh, And, yeah, I remember getting into the institution within that Land Rover and the gates closing. And sort of that sort of um, was my beginning of you know, experiencing institutional care. I spent 14 years of my childhood in, in that institution. Um, one of my brothers ran away from the orphanage. Um, he was older and he couldn't really cope uh, with the life within that orphanage. Um, so, but you know, I was left with my sister and you know, 14 years of my childhood that's where um, it all started and, you know, and with a lot of experiences as well. Um, and again, yeah, my role in advocacy sort of is really based on that experience of me growing up in an orphanage and also seeing other young people who've grown up, you know, in an orphanage, the experiences, their challenges. Um, and personally, I felt like, yeah, I don't think, this is a place where children belong or should be raised at. Um, so, yeah, in brief, um, that's me. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing a bit of your story. Ruth, give us a sense of your background and um, how you became a child's rights advocate. Uh, thank you, Lily, for having me today and being part of this podcast to shed light on a topic that I, I think is very important for all of us to be informed about. Uh, well, I I am a member of Kenya Society of Calivers and, and probably the reason why I'm able to advocate for the rights of children. I was separated from my family at a tender age, uh, and this was right from the beginning when my mom's marriage uh, broke down and we she couldn't take care of five children. And so um, the immediate response from her end was to place us to our grandmother's place. 
But then you realize that my grandmother was very old and she also was couldn't even take care of the five. And at that moment, my mom left. I think uh, for her having to imagine she has to take care of five children and here she is and her life has come to some sort of a dead end. Um, and my, my the inability of my grandmother to take care of us uh, prompted her to share these with a neighbor. And, and, and the neighbor said, oh, I know of an orphanage in Nairobi that get, takes care of orphans. And so for me, for the very first time, I was getting to interact with what exactly it feels to feel like an orphan. Because when she said an orphan, I was like, ooh, are we really orphans? And so that was the beginning of it. We ended up in this institution um, with my grandmother. And, and something I remember is that we didn't even know really the way. So we ended up in this police station. It was quite very late at night, like 10 p.m., and we ended up in this police station and we were explaining that, oh, my grandmother was like, I'm taking these children to an orphanage and I can't find my way there. And yeah, we got into the into a land cruiser and the police escorted us to the home. Uh, what I remember most about getting into this home is that the moment we got into the institution and we met the director of the home, the first thing she said, uh, how are you and welcome? And then we, we were served with a meal. But then she dismissed us and said, you can join the rest. I don't remember a point where she asked my name. And from that moment, I knew this was going to be my home. But then the director does not even have my name. She did not record our, me and my sister's names anywhere. And so for me, that was some sort of very strange, having to join the rest of the kids. And, you know, like right from the beginning, I know there's no filing system. No one knows where I've come from, you know. So to me, that was really weird. I, I started feeling something was wrong. But then, of course, at that moment, I was feeling safe because I knew I'm, I'm in a home. There'll be food. There'll be education. I am one of the children who grew up hearing education is the key to success. And so for me, being in this home was an assurance that I'm going to get education and definitely will be the key to success. So I didn't really get worried at that time. So and how old much. were you at that time, Ruth? I can't remember. I was okay. quite young, yeah. but still in very, very tender yeah. age, I think five or six. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, at that moment, what was worrying me much was food and education. And so me being there was a little safer for me. But then until I realized that, yeah, life was not what I expected um, and having to see, you know, two house mothers and we are close to 300 of us uh, and being in group care, you know, and at that moment I felt something was absolutely wrong. And should I ever get a chance in future, then I'm going to shed light on exactly what happens in, in, in institutions just to educate people more. So let's start there. Let's talk about some of the memories that you do have from growing up in, in these institutions. Um, I think both of you came at a young age. Both of you spent significant, I mean, all of your childhood, Stephen, growing up entirely was there. Are there memories that stick out to you as really significant of your understanding of your own history? Well, no, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, Memories, memories. Yeah, I, I think the first thing for me is the, just the separation from my, uh, one from my dad who visited uh, me once and uh, him being told that uh, if he visited again, I will be taken back to him. And he didn't have a choice because he really wanted us to have an education. Wow. So um, let, let me pause there because the, the sentence you've just said, I think to me, is, is, is shocking. So you're, you are in the institution after your mother has passed away. Mm -hmm. Is it your father who brings you to the institution the first no, time? My, no, my father wasn't around. Then. Okay, they had okay. sort of separated. They separated then. So someone yeah. else has brought you to the institution. Yeah. Your father comes to visit you, and the response to him, instead of a kind of a conversation about reunification yeah. or even ongoing support, was a threat. Yes. That if you come again, yeah. Stephen's access to education will be ended. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so you saw your, that was the last time you saw your yeah, dad? Yeah, that was the last time. And I, wow. I, I was around, um, maybe I was around seven or eight then. Wow. Um, and so when he left um, the institution, because he visited when I was, he visited, yeah, he visited when I was around eight there. And then I was told by my brother later on that um, he passed on when I was around 12 years old. Mm. 
Um, but again, yeah, I didn't get didn't to see, see him. him again. Yeah. And yeah. your older brother who ran away, did he, did you reunite with him at some point? At some point I did, and that was 10 years later. Wow. And then oh. it was quite difficult for me. Yeah, One, because we, we didn't speak the same language. Okay, so where were you? Where was the orphanage that you were living in? It was so it was here in Nairobi. Okay. And uh, in Nairobi, I mean the popular language is Kikuyu. Okay. So I okay. get to know Kikuyu. Okay. And then um, for my so uh, I came from Kisi. Mm-hmm. So Kisi is my sort of my mother tongue, sure. but I don't know how to speak Kisi. Okay. It's, so Kisi is close to the coast. No, no, it's uh, it's it's uh, close to Nyanza. Close to Nyanza. Okay, so you've come from Western, yeah, into Nairobi, yeah, different languages now, yeah, and uh, of, of course even urban to rural or rural yeah. to urban rather, just different settings entirely. Mm-hmm. So when you reunify with your brother, mm-hmm. where had he gone when he ran away? So one of so I have two brothers. Okay. So um, the brother who ran away went back to Kisi. Okay. He was older, so he knew sure. well, like how to navigate mm-hmm. his way back. Um, it's actually when I met him, he told me, "Yeah, you know what? I couldn't live inside that space. You know, like yeah. he, he told me, he felt like it was a prison. Yeah. And the fact that there were no other, I mean, we didn't have our family members around. He couldn't. But he also told me he couldn't come back um, because he didn't have money." Uh, but uh, my eldest brother now is the one who actually one day visited uh, the institution and um, he took us to visit our our mom's place. Okay. Um, but yeah, so for, for me, I feel like, you know, the fact that even we could, it, it was so hard for me to relate with them. Uh, they say blood is thicker than water. But, you know, at that point when, you know, when even my brother came to visit us, I didn't want to go with him. Mm. Uh, because of the 10 years of separation. Of course. And the fact that I couldn't even speak the language, sort of language, you know, is part of identity. The fact that I couldn't even speak uh, the language, I felt, you know, a bit strange. I felt like they were strangers. Yeah. And I think that kind of separation has today really affected me because I don't still feel like we are a family. Yeah. Um, also, one is the distance. Um, we don't speak often. We don't talk often, and all that. Um, I've tried, you know, you know, for a long time to really connect with them, but it's 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 one of the hardest things. Of course. And I don't blame them. Um, at the same time, I I felt I feel a bit guilty as well. The fact mm. that you know we don't really connect, relate that well. Well, and it's it's heartbreaking to hear that story, um, and I think it's so powerful that you're willing to share it because I think this is what people need to understand: that institutions create, they create a false community, and they create separation between families and children, not just uh, temporary while they're children, but lifelong. It becomes a gap that you know both you and Ruth are working so hard to prevent for other kids. Ruth, can you recall some of the memories that you have from those years, um, you know, when you were five, six, up until, how long were you actually in the institution? Maybe I should clarify that. Close to seven years. Close to seven years. So into, well into teenagehood, you were there. Yeah. Can you recall some of the memories you have from those years? Um, uh, a lot of memories, uh, but unfortunately, most of them are very negative. Mm. I think um, it was the fact that we, I was born in a family of five, and so uh, the five of us did not make it to the institution. And so our firstborn and our lastborn remained behind. And so for me, being separated from these two and being in a home, the three of us, uh, of course, I had disturbing memories of where they could be, you know, like, where is my mom? Because at one point we are waking up from my grandmother's home and my mom is not there. At another moment, we are in the institution. So I've still not come to terms to, you know, the fact that my mom is missing, in, in not really missing, but of course she knew where she was. Uh, but um, having even to be in this home and not being able to relate with my uh, other siblings and, and also what happened like a few months after getting to this home where we, you know, this this lady who who's a caregiver, you know, came to us and said, uh, from today, there are so many people who will come to the home and they'll ask a lot of questions, but this is how you're going to uh, answer the questions. So you'll have to say, 
you orphaned, you don't know where you came from and you have to denounce like your identity, your culture, you you know, and, and, and literally I would I would tell this to visitors. So every time they would come and um I would tell them I don't know where I came from and you know, we would very sympathetic and so I can really totally uh, relate to Stephen's story where uh, the, the explanation to that was if they know where you come from you know you'll not have access to education and food and so your support here will end and so for me was more having to come to terms to, to by the fact that I'm telling people my mother is dead and I know she's not dead my grandmother is there she's not dead but having to you know like jungle between two things talking about the dead and in my heart I know they are not dead and so and having to get a fake personality because that was quite fake for me and to pose like you know a child whose parents are dead and they don't know where they came from so that to me was key and then later having to you know interact with other children in the orphanage who are telling you know we would share in our moments and they would talk about my father being in this place my mom being in this place but then you have to stick and say you are total orphaned you know uh so those are really things that got you know to my heart very much and I felt they were really wrong uh but then of course we needed education as as we had mentioned and and food yeah. and so that was the only way we would fit in the community you know unicef reports that there are at least at least 8 million children living in institutions worldwide and I think that figure they've said could be 10 times as much. Actually, it's very hard to get really concrete numbers on um, the amount of children living in institutions. And I think as I start to hear you talk about um, these messages you got, you know, just tell me, what, what were some of the routines that maybe would go on when you did get visitors, you know, and how often would you see people coming to the home? Ruth, you said the home you were in was about 300 children or so. Stephen, how about you, the institution? Was it a this large one? Over 100. I over 100, yeah. okay. Yeah, over 100. Can you tell me what some of those visits were like from, from tourists and those who were coming to volunteer? Or what your impression was as a child when they would come? Personally, I think as a child, I mean, it is good and bad. One, we appreciated the fact that they brought goodies, candies, and um, some of them donated clothes. And, you know, that's the only time you could get a new shoe or, you know, get a new T-shirt or uh, get a new jeans. And, you know, those are things that I remember. But again, the bar that I remember is sort of their visit also meant something to me because it sort of made me realize the difference between us and, you know, children within the community um, that we were... Uh, sort of, you know, I always say like it felt like a zoo whereby people would just come in and observe, look at you. Some of them, you know, genuinely pity you, cry. Um, but, but personally, I felt I really didn't want that kind of sympathy. Um, um, what I, I really wanted is sort of to have a normal childhood. Uh, but I always felt like, you know, this is not normal. Like, you know, we are there, uh, you know, we, we are... Uh, sort of, you know, called, gathered, you know, paraded. Um, um, and, you know, we are taught to sing to all these visitors. And, you know, we it, often, you know, we would rehearse, you know, songs at night that you'd sing the next day for the visitors. Uh, and, you know, the whole intention was just to make sure that they would visit again. You know, they would tell us, you know, if you do it like this, you know, they feel compelled to come again and donate. And so that idea in itself uh, sort of, you know, you know, when I was growing, because this is not something that I really sort of really caught when I was so young. But, you know, as you grow older, you sort of start to reflect that, you know, this is not really good and this is not normal. Um, yeah, I, when I was preparing for this interview, I, I just Googled volunteerism. Yeah. And I was surprised, like, the first things that came up were actually from governments saying, when you're on safari this year, consider volunteering at, and they would list these institutions. I won't name the, the countries per se. Um, and I was struck by that because what you're saying is that it felt like you were in a zoo. That's essentially how people are marketing it. While you're on holiday, also you can visit a children's home, visit an institution. I mean, they list it as a part of what people can do while they're on holiday. And I, I was really shocked by that. Um, that it, and that's changing. I see that the, the UK, I think, has now, uh, let me make sure I get it correctly, but they have just recently started to discourage their citizens from participating in any kind of institutional visits. Australia has now even gone as far as to say that 
They consider orphanage tourism a form of slavery. I think that's quite powerful to say this is not just, it's no longer tourism, it's a form of slavery that you're participating in. And yet, we know that it's still perpetuated over and over and over again. And the U.S., the U.K., um, are also the, the number one kind of pipeline of these tourists coming and, and visiting, essentially, like you said, Stephen, a zoo of children. Indeed. And, you know, that the fact that you know, it's a form of slavery because it's sort of, you know, many children are kept there. And, you know, when you're, when you're told to, you know, to sort of parade as an, as an orphan when you're actually not an orphan and you're in a space that's so constrained, you know, you can't even... Because we couldn't even report the abuse, uh, you know. It's, it's whatever happens there happens and it's, you know, it's kept there. Um, for me, those, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of slavery for me. And, you know, you can't report the stuff because of, you know, you know, you know reprisals. Um, what, what did you ever witness or hear about a child who would maybe try and get help for something that was going on and a repercussion that might happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of physical, brutal physical abuse mm. when you were growing mm. up. And you know what? You, you sort of, it sort of became, you know, it sort of become numb. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, yeah. and some of us sort of become hardened. Um, and, you know, you know, you say whatever happens, happens. And that affects you when you grow up because you sort of also lose a bit of sympathy and I remember some of us when we were growing up, we said, you know, like you don't feel like when people die, when people are sick, when people, you know, are sort of struggling, you just feel like, you know, it's normal, it's part of life. Yeah. You, know, you, you, lose, you lose that kind of humanness. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, I think the other bad thing about it's sort of being objectified because, you know, growing up, you know, you feel just like a number and, you know, in the institution, it's sort of, you know, they needed to show the numbers. And so uh, often it would be paraded and, you know, they would say, you know, how many children are there in the institution that they are supporting? You know, these appeals to donors, volunteers and anyone else, oh, uh, those are many orphans. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some incentive to actually have a very full orphanage and even look like you're overcrowded and they need even more support because, look, we can't take care of the children we have because yeah. we're so ma- there's so many of them. Yeah. 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 Ruth, was your experience similar? Did you have similar kind of preparatory activities before you would receive visitors where you in the institution that you were in? Oh, we did. And ours was actually very intense because we would practice like a week to the visitors coming. And, and I still remember this person who would come and would parade right from the gate uh, form very long queues parallel to each other and he would pass in between and we're singing and shouting wow. and and our our home the director was was christian and so she we would sing a lot of gospel songs and i remember us singing about those bones and how you know the bones came to life mm. and so every donor who listens to these and you know we we are dressed in tattered clothes and stuff like that and so they would be very they would feel very sympathetic and like steve said they would be compelled to give and for me so what I didn't feel okay about was that I had to sing for me to have food I had to you know dance for someone for me to have education and so for me really I felt like yeah in the bare minimum children should eat children should should school children should have you know the basic needs but the fact that we have to please someone for us to get those um, the needs met so for me that was quite something then just the whole aspect of having to be paraded um, and, and talk to donors. But then at the same uh, time, there's a caregiver who's looking after you so that you don't mention something that is going wrong because, uh, of course, children want to mention about this is not right, that is not right. So for me, having to be super... It, it felt very patronizing that yeah. you, you you can't be a child. You just can't Did you be, feel you know, at that time when you were in the home, you know, I imagine the first time it happens, you're like, oh, okay, this is happening. I'm sure after a year after year after year you know you start to recognize a pattern at what age do you feel like you realized this is just wrong this is transactional like you said in order for me to get food or education I have to perform when did that click I think I can't really pick on an age but something that made it clear for me was that um, the time the donors come in their presence would have food, in their presence would have clothes. But all the stuff that they left and, and maybe asked that we get them on a later date, then they never made to, you know, to the kids. Mm. And so for me, uh, every time other new visitors would come, I would be tempted to be like, 
please could you ask that they distribute these clothes before you leave you know mm. because i know after all if you leave then we're not going to have this these items and so i think it, it came with maturity you know everyone starts to understand uh, things at a different age and for me i think that is that it's at a certain age that's when i got to realize oh so when they leave the stuff belong to the store and and for a, a certain reasons overnight would see lorries coming and, and and they would pick the stuff and they would get into a lorry and distributed somewhere else but then at that time I would not understand where they were going to until I was you know a teenager and I was yeah. like oh could they be transacting with this yeah. so yeah yeah you, there there was it became clear anyways yeah. that this was not what it appeared um So let me pivot back to a little bit about your personal families. Uh, you've given us a, a, I think a really clear picture for me anyways of what institutional care was like. What information did you have about your birth families or histories? I mean Ruth you've mentioned already your mom was alive, your grandmother was alive. Stephen your father was alive and then he passed away while you were in the institution. Um, were you able to get access to this information or how did you maybe finally make some of these connections? once you left institutional care can you talk to us about that maybe Ruth you can start and tell us what you knew about your birth family once you got in the institution and did you ever reconnect with them i think the fact that i knew my grandmother brought me to the orphanage i knew she was alive but then um the fact that i did not have any constant communication or even communication after she left was something to worry about because she was she was she was old um anything could have happened to her at the time but the fact that i i did not have a way to you know speak to her and find out how she was doing uh, how i later came to reconnect was upon exit um and this time uh, there are these people who came they were social workers now i understand they were social workers um both from government and private and so how this happened was that they 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 had visited the home and and they had collected some information on how these children made it to this home and so they knew there was a grandmother somewhere and so when we exited and reunified with her um i remember it was kind of an ambush because she was not ready no one prepared her that her grandchildren would be coming home. Okay, no let, one, me, let me pause here and, and clarify. Uh-huh. So you are now let's say 12 13 how do you yeah. remember how old you were? Some early teenagehood somewhere? Early teenager. Okay. Yeah. And social workers come they realize these children these your three of you mm-hmm. have a family unit somewhere. Yep. Yeah. And were you given much information to say okay now in in a week's time or one month's time we're going to start helping you go back home? Interestingly, uh, I think the home uh it's good for me to mention this that the home was shut down because the living standards were very deplorable but then this morning we're in a classroom and and in, it's in the middle of a lesson and then the bell rings and the gates are wide open and we see buses coming to the compound and of course we were excited because we we neighbored a giraffe sanctuary and we also knew that yeah it's very interesting to go on a safari and so when we saw these very posh buses they looked like safari buses and we were all excited it's a surprise we are all going to a safari masai mara and and so for a moment when the bell rang i would see like i i was you know for a moment i realized there was panic in in the teacher's face because yeah he panicked a little bit and we couldn't understand but i could feel something was wrong and then the students were like oh where are we going and everyone is asking the teacher but the teacher does not have an answer as well and so it was it was very anxious moment yeah, at that time chaotic, yeah. and so we all you know gathered at one place because now uh, it was the norm when the bell rings everyone has to gather at a central place so we gathered and the first thing someone said and and this visitor said oh, we are so happy to have you here um and would like to take you to some place so if you come from central province uh you're going to board this bus bus number 1 if you come from nyanza province you're going to board bus number 1 wow. and for a moment you realize for all of your years in the institution you have been an orphan without you know in quotes you without any memory of where you came from and your parents and for a moment it gets to hit you yeah you're from central province and so you have to get to bus number one. and so how it was not clear was that why are we going on a safari with different buses and with the number of the province or you know something sure. of the sort but i remember one person who asked are we carrying our books and are we carrying our clothes and and and, and this person responded and said actually carry all of your stuff so it was not clear why are we carrying all of our stuff we didn't even have you know like bags or suitcases to pack our stuff and i remember them giving us some some plastic papers that you literally put litter and that's what we got 
And so for me, what I remember was how I walked back to the class, getting the books and my clothes and putting them in the paper bag, the plastic bag. And that's how I concluded my institutional care in, in, wow. in your you whole know. life, your whole life in a plastic bag. Yes. One morning in that same day, did you arrive at your grandmother's? And no, we, we, ally, we arrived a few days, like two days later. Oh, but, um, but still within 48 hours, you mm-hmm. were in a totally different setting. Oh, not that different than how you arrived actually. And the worst thing was the fact that you didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to anyone. Right. And the fact that you're a child and you're having to think, where could we be going? You know, course, where, where are we heading to? You never picked any contacts with the teachers. And so there was panic and children were crying and screaming and others running away the moment it did hit on them that, yeah, literally you're going home. And for a few moments, uh, for, for a second, we saw the director passing and she was in, in, in handcuffs, like she was handcuffed. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing was not really a good of course experience. Not. Of course and, not. And, and it's never been a good experience. Because for at that moment, it felt like as a child, I have no control of my own life and I have no chance to participate in what happens to me at what time and whenever. So anyone, any other person, is another person is responsible for my life and they can just move me like the table. You know, this morning you wake up and you realize, oh, this table is in the wrong place and so I have to move it to the other corner. And for me, yeah, that, that still stands out on how the exit really happened. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Now, as as advocates, both of you have traveled the world really trying to advocate both in government and private sector and faith-based organizations to really get people to think about their supportive institutions um, by sharing your story and sharing your work. Um, Stephen, maybe you can start and tell us why um, you started the Kenyan Society of Care Leavers and what is your main goal or priority in the organization? Um... One, yeah, I started Kenya Society of Care Leavers, um, one, because of my personal journey within um, the institution, the orphanage that I grew up in, um, and also because of the the much that I had seen young people who had left care as well had experienced. Um, the fact that um, we were really struggling to cope in the community, uh, really struggling to understand, to understand ourselves as well within the community. And, uh, you know, I also got also a lot of support from people who felt like, you know, um, what you're going through, it's not just you, the other people are going through it. So uh, can you do something about it? And so I think from that point, I feel like, you know, I needed to start something. And I started small because we used to meet like seven of us within my own house. I used to live in a one, in a single room. And so we'd all meet, some of them would sit on the floor, others would sit on the one seat that I had and <laughs> just chat, have yeah. tea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the thing was, you know, we were all sort of agreeing that we, we had challenges. And I think that for me was sort of the, the one step towards starting, you know, Kenya Society of Care Leavers. And so I also started interacting with friends um, who are also willing to help um, care leavers. Um, so from seven, uh, the organization has really grown. Now we have over 250. And also starting Kenya Society of Care Leavers, the idea was to give them a voice, to be able to share some of what they, they, they had gone through, you know, within their childhood. Um, but you also realize that most of them even don't want to talk about what they went through in their yeah, childhood. Of course. And I would say, you know, the silent ones are actually the most vulnerable. I wouldn't even categorize myself as vulnerable, having listened, you know, to so many stories of some of the young people. Ruth, now in your global advocacy work, what is the message that you try and focus on saying? You know, if you have five minutes to speak to a group of people, what's the message for you that is, is most important for people to understand? I want us to come to a point where we ask, what exactly does that child feel? What exactly does that child want? And not more of what you feel is right for you, not what you think is right for you. But the opinion of the child in an institution matters most. And for this reason, we understand that the the children currently in the institutions now have no voice. And that is why uh, a society like Kenya Society of Care Leavers exists to talk on behalf of those children. For me, what I would want all of us is to 
to be open-minded and not really rigid. I know change is hard to come by. But then when you listen to these stories, uh, we, you get to understand that, yeah, what we really think are good intentions then could be bad outcomes for children. I think that that's so important. I, I, you are gracious enough to say that change is hard. But for me, it has not been hard to understand 80 to 90% of children in an orphanage, quote unquote, have a living parent. You know, that to me, hearing that statistic, hearing your voices today is so compelling. I mean, to me, it is so clear that, okay, we need to do something differently. You know, we are recording this show today in Nairobi, Kenya. Both of you are Kenyans who have taken your story far beyond um, our borders. There will be people who are listening now in the U.S. or the U.K. or here in Nairobi who are getting ready for Christmas season. And they're, you know, either collecting those clothes to donate or they're planning a Christmas party in a children's home. And as far as they know, that child needs their visit to, you know, cheer them up or to bring some Christmas holiday love or whatever to them. Stephen, what do you say in response to those communities are saying, okay, so what do I do now? You know, for me, the statistics in your story is enough. But for those who, you know, want to engage with children who have needs or with the institutions, what do you say to them? I think in every child there is a longing to belong, you know? You want to belong. You don't want to be moved here and there, you know? You want that sense of permanency, um, the idea of you know identity belonging quite crucial to you. It's not the food because I always say I, I I've forgotten the food that I ate. It was horrible, but it's not that food that I even <laughs> remember. Have other experiences? Yeah. I mean, it's the relationships that I lost that I remember. You know, it's you know that disconnect with my family that I I remember most. It's not the food. It's not the candies and all that. I mean, momentarily they were good. Yeah. You know, they sure. brighten you, they cheer you up. Yeah, and I think that's the key. Yeah, it's momentarily. Yeah. It's a, temporary temporary flash yeah. in that child's life yeah and, and you know it's when we're talking we're always talking about sustainability you know if we can protect that child from being removed from the family and if we can ensure that that child uh, that is taken to another family you know to have that sense of identity belonging to feel loved as an individual not being treated as a statistic yeah. for me that's sort of the most important thing yeah. and so i think for donors or for anyone who is giving I would say, yeah, just think, you know, also are you feeding into a system that's quite exploitative? Because that's often what we do. We are feeding into a system that's majorly exploitative. And I appreciate the fact that they provide even education and food. But I always say, don't remove the child from a family because of food. Right. Take that food to right. that family. Right. Um, or, you know, don't remove that child to another place because of education. Why can't you educate that child within that, com you know, that community? Uh, and, you know, sort of also help communities have a sense of responsibility. Because what you're doing is, at times when you help a person as a foreigner, um, we also feel like, you know, the donors loved us more even than our parents at some point. You know, we feel like even sort of your family members have neglected you. And here there's this donor, there's this volunteer who loves you. In quotes, you know, quotes, more than, yeah. you know, the family. Yeah, yeah. You sort of even start sort of dividing uh, families in a way. Yeah. So the, the idea is sort of, you know, just support children where they are, you know, within communities and help them appreciate also their context, you know. And that's also the only way in which they, they can even try to improve that, you know, community, that society. Um, I, I think for me it's just that simple. I mean, there are ways in which we can help better. Yeah. I, I want to read um, just a quote from a researcher, a professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, which is in the United States. Um, professor Freudus has um, studied volunteerism. And one thing I think that is important for all of us to remember is some of what we know about volunteerists uh, is that they don't come with skills. These are not trained nurses or social workers who come with a skill to contribute. These are people like me who think they have a good intention and that that is enough. So in uh, the professor's research, one of the conclusions that she came to is that volunteerist ability to change systems, alleviate poverty, or provide support for vulnerable children is limited. They simply don't have the skills. And they can inadvertently perpetuate patronizing and unhelpful ideas about the places that they visit. Students who engage in these programs actually contribute towards the mystification of larger systems that produce inequity poverty, and particular patterns of disease distribution and various forms of violence. 
I thought that was really powerful, that by visiting these homes, continuing to contribute to them, instead of providing a, even a temporary moment of happiness, what you are doing is contributing towards inequity, a mystification of these systems, poverty and violence. I mean, that to me is a really powerful statement, and that comes from research. So what are the questions that we need to know as, as Nairobians, as Kenyans elsewhere in the, in the country, or, or, or expatriates who are living here? What are the questions we should be asking our schools, our churches, our friends who say, come with me to this institution? How do we identify you know, if this is a legitimate situation? And, and are there any that are actually legitimate? As long as the institution stands in between the child and their family, then that is not the right place. That is not the best cause to give towards to. And so for me, uh, we're still in the spirits of no limits, like Kipchoge Keino did, uh, uh, said. And having come from this, I believe that no family is limited with the right pace setters. And the pace setters are the people listening, the pace setters are you and me. That we, with the right pace setters, if we, we support these families, then they are well able to take care of their children. That they are not limited. And all they need is the support. I, I, I love reflecting this from my own. Like, if my grandmother was given the right support, trust you me, would not have ended up in an institution. So Stephen, let me just ask a very clear question. We know and research has shown us that children who are institutionalized have trouble forming healthy attachments because when visitors come over and over and over again and they play with me one week and you next week and a different person the week after that, long-term stable relationships don't exist for them. They have these temporary exchanges and emotionally and physically we see the side effects and a huge side effect really is this inability to form healthy attachments. So when people are looking for places to support vulnerable communities and vulnerable children, what should they look for in an organization to know this is the right place, where I'm not going to do harm, where I can you know, contribute some good? What do they look for? Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Because at times we tend to really talk about problems without really offering uh, solutions. Um, there's so many projects, uh, programs within communities that are really community-centered and family-focused. And, you know, these are places, whether it's churches, uh, whether they are schools, um, these are spaces whereby you can go and contribute, um, whether it's skills, you know, your knowledge and skills, but also you can provide material support, uh, clothing. Um, and I know so many churches that have outreach projects where you can donate clothing or foodstuff and they'll go to the community and they and identify needy families or vulnerable children and support them. And these are projects that you can actually uh, go and support. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, we, we have a shot of that. Um, so there are a lot of people who are doing good uh, uh, as we talk about this subject. So just to be very clear, what you're looking for is you're looking for community-based programs. Mm -hmm. So not programs that are institutionalizing children, but it's a family-focused institution. Indeed. So if they're contributing clothing, it's clothing for mom to go to work and dad mm -hmm. to go to work and the child to go to school. It's a, it's a family-focused yes. organization. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you know, if it's an outreach that it's, it's very much embedded in the community, that mm -hmm. it's not a separate entity that's now taken a child from Nairobi, to somewhere out in a rural area Indeed. to educate them or to house them, that it is a community-connected organization. Indeed, and you did mention, you know, like the school feeding, and we have yeah. organizations that are providing, let's say, sanitary towels, you know, Absolutely. to needy students or school uniforms as well. Those are some of the projects that you can support. Great. Yeah. And I will do my best to include many of those links in the profile of this episode so listeners Please do take a moment, scroll down through the description and find the links because I, I do want to connect people to, like you said so, so perfectly, Stephen, to solutions. We don't want to just expose a problem. We want to point to solutions. And community-based, family-focused mm -hmm. solutions exist. There are mm -hmm. plenty of them in Nairobi. We really, there's no need for us to support institutions. We can support families and communities um, in many different ways. So, so thank you for that. That's really helpful. So Ruth, um, Kenyan Society of Careleavers, you're the secretary, so I'm sure it's your duty to keep the calendar <laughs> of events. Tell us about what you have coming up um, with the holidays approaching. In case people want to support, how can they do so responsibly with the Kenya Society of Careleavers? So every year as a society, we hold Christmas parties uh, for careleavers, um, uh, to even fundraise for uh, some of the activities. 
And so, yeah, we're calling everyone who feels that they, they can do something and they want to contribute and to give to an institution. Uh, they could generously give to Kenya Society of Calivers. Um, yeah, it's, it's really close to the Calivers themselves, but then their money will go a long way in helping and empowering the Calivers themselves through, you know, a program like Singing to the Lions and even help the children What's singing of the, to the Lions? Tell us what that is. So Singing to the Lions is a, is a program. It's a 10 weeks program, uh, a, a more like healing, uh, healing from trauma uh, program that um, we, we take our ladies through. And, and, and right now we are also taking the gents through the program. Helps them f- heal from trauma because being in an institution can be quite traumatic. And so, yeah, when we have uh, people and good friends contributing to the society, this goes a long way in making sure that we are able to pay for 20 people, 20 caregivers to go through a singing to the Lions program. And so for this Christmas, yes, we be gathering, uh, normally we gather of like 200 caregivers together. And so, yeah, any gift in kind uh, or in, you know, money and, and whatever will go a long way in helping these uh, to be a success. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Ruth. And, and you can contribute by visiting kesca.org. Um, like Ruth mentioned, the funds will be used to support care leavers as they transition. Um, it will be used to even support care leavers and their families. Many of these care leavers themselves now are parents, so to help support them as they start their own families. The singing to the lions um, and, and helping them to support with the emotional transition that there is as well. That's really quite powerful. And, and maybe you're listening to this and you're not in Kenya. You are in another country and you think, okay, well, I'm not there. How can I give? Please do consider giving to Kenya, but also as you are approaching the holidays and you want to give, ask those questions of your community members. Ask them of your schools, of your churches, of your friends, of your rotary, of whomever it is that you're connected to. Ask them, is the work that we're supporting community-based and family-focused? And make sure that the dollars that you intend to do good actually does good during the holiday season. So thanks, Ruth. Thanks, Stephen. That's, those are such helpful suggestions to help guide us as we go into a really giving season. Thank you. Um, CRS, Catholic Relief Services, did this survey, um, which I read in preparation for today, and I was struck by the perception of orphanages in the United States by Americans. I think over 60% of Americans thought that there were still orphanages in the United States. But the fact of the matter is that over 50 years ago, all orphanages and uh, children's homes were closed in favor of a foster care system that would place children in homes from the youngest to the oldest. And 50 years ago, the U.S. said this is not appropriate for children for be, to be institutionalized. And yet, I'm also an American passport holder, we are the, the number one contributors to so many of these orphanages, at least in our region of the world here in East Africa. And we know that Family-based care works. Those alternatives work. Our good friend, all of our mutual friend, Kelly Bunkers, has worked so hard on this issue. And some of the work that she's been a part of in Moldova has um, seen as a result of um, an emphasis on family-based care services. So encouraging government systems that are now foster care systems. Um, The number of children in institutions has dropped by 71%. 71%. So if we apply that statistic to 8 million plus children in institutions worldwide, we would see millions of children in family-based care if we could start to shift where we support, if we start to instead put money and effort towards other programs. What is it that you want people to remember about orphanage tourism, about children in institutions, and ways that we, as citizens of this beautiful country and of the world, can really do better on behalf of children? Ruth, let me start with you. As long as we continue to volunteer in orphanages, that children will be neglected, children will be separated, children will lack the sense of belonging, and children will be exploited. So uh, wherever we are and we are listening, we need to remember this, that as long as, or as as much as we, we, we've had the message, but we want to, you know, console ourselves and say, yeah, I, can, I, 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 do, I think this is the right thing to do. As long as we continue to do this, then uh, we are rest assured that the abuse will continue, the exploitation of, uh, will continue. And so it's, it's, it's us to just figure out what exactly we want. Do we want to support a system that separates children from their families or do we want to keep children in their families? Thank you for that, Ruth. Stephen, how about you? What are, what's, what, what's the one thing you want people to really take away from this conversation? I, I, um, I, always, I, mean, I always end my thinking with one thought, simple thought. So if you don't if you don't bring up children in families, how will they end up 
bringing up their own families. I think for me that is so critical because the whole idea of, you know, you know, growing up is all based on, you know, the context, the environment and the socialization. And people really take for granted the fact that you just grow up and you're able to bring up your own family. And young people who, who I've seen who've grown up in institutions, one of the biggest struggles is actually sort of, you know, having the idea of the family together. And, you know, the society, sort of the strength of a society is actually based on a family. And so what it means is actually that you're breaking our society. Thank, Thank you for that. That's really powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's what, we, what we plant, we will grow. What we, what we reap, we will sow. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. If we take children out of families and place them in institutions, how will they themselves create a society that we all want to be a part of? Mm. And listeners, I know it could be easy to listen to all of this and still feel very conflicted and still feel like, I don't get it. How can I support babies? How can I support, you know, little toddlers who don't have a mother or a father? And I want you to just remember that both Stephen and Ruth's stories, I want you to remember that 80 to 90% of them do have a living parent. So if you are so inclined to give over this holiday season, please do ask those hard questions of your churches, of your schools, about the kind of institutions that they want to be involved in. And if it is an institution for children, it is not appropriate. I think that's the bottom line. Find a hospital, perhaps a healthcare facility where you can support new mothers who might be feeling very vulnerable. Find a feeding program. There are many throughout Nairobi. I will encourage you to look into several of them. You can just um, find in, in different informal settlements. There are education communities and a lot of them in Mithare and Kangwari, all over the city who are supporting families to keep their kids in school by supporting the entire family unit. They're not just looking at the kids, but they're looking at what do moms need, what do dad's need, you can get involved there and support those organizations who are supporting families. It might be a shift in mindset and a shift in how you perceive things, but let's keep kids and children at the center of our decision making. Stephen and Ruth, I am indebted to you as somebody who is a member of your community and here in Nairobi. I'm so grateful for your voices, for your advocacy, for your strength. Um, I hope many more people will visit um, the Kenyan Society of Caregivers. You can find them um, K-E-S-C-A dot org. <laughs> you can find them there. Please do go and see the resources they offer and the ways that you can support the Society of Care Leavers. I mean, that's so profound to me. You know, we didn't help you as kids. So now we have a chance as a society to support the Care Leavers as they transition into adulthood. So please do check out their work. I'm so thankful for both of you, Stephen and Ruth, for your time, for your effort, for your commitment. We are with you. Thank you so much for being on Upward today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Lily. And listeners, please do let me know what you think about this episode. You can tweet at me at Uproot and Lil, L-I-L-L dot org. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Uproot the Podcast. And um, let's, you know, remember the words of Wangari Mathai. You have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. And by supporting care leavers, by ending orphanage tourism, we can reroute justice for children in all of our communities, no matter where you live. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.